Uh, this morning we continue our series uh, in Joseph. Uh, we're in the fourth week of a series. Uh, we're examining together how it is that God works in and through the life of Joseph, and in and through his family's life as well. In effect, how it is that God works for good in the midst of all of the different challenges and difficulties and hardships that this family faces. So far we've looked at how Joseph was one of 12 brothers. He was the second youngest. Despite being the 11th in the family, he was in reality number one in his dad's eyes, Jacob. Joseph was a favourite and he was arguably, in the way he conducted himself, the most arrogant of all 12 brothers. God gave Joseph two dreams about what his life would look like. And instead of Joseph seeing these dreams as an opportunity to look upward and to worship God with all that he was, he used these dreams against his brothers and against his family. In his arrogance, he basically said this, look at how great I will be, look at how ordinary you will be through these visions God has given me. So Joseph's brothers hated him for all of this, and their hatred was such that they couldn't even stand to be in his presence. They couldn't even have a polite conversation with Joseph. And their hatred overflowed in their hearts to the point that they decided to murder him. That their plan changes. Instead of murder, they decided to sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. And when they return home, they tell their dad that Joseph has been killed by a wild beast. And so, in one chapter, in Genesis, we see a family completely ripped apart, both emotionally and relationally. And we read these final words in Genesis 37 and in verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. If you're reading this story for the first time, something happens as you read it. You're immediately asking a question, what's going to happen next? Is Joseph going to be okay? Will Jacob ever find out what really happened? And none of these questions are answered straight away. In fact, we're left to wait a little longer because of our passage today, Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38 shifts, and this is a story of one of the brothers, Judah, and his family. It's, the story takes place immediately after Joseph has been sold into slavery. At first glance, it appears like this is a random story inserted into the Joseph narrative, but it's not. There's a number of connections between what takes place in Judah's life and what's going on in the life of Joseph. So we're going to take some time to read this passage together as we see how it flows into what we've already looked at. So if you have your Bibles... Turn with me to Genesis 38. The words are going to be up on the screen for us as well. And in verse 1, we read this. Genesis 38, starting in verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adullamite named Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as a wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Er. She conceived again, gave birth to a son. And named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was a Chesib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother in law, and produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. 
for he thought he might die too like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira, the Adolamite, went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance of Eniam, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me for sleeping with me? I will send you a young goat for my flock, he replied. But she said, Only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you, he asked. She answered, Your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. She got up and left, then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who is beside the road at NM? There, there has been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adolamite returned to Judah, saying, I couldn't find her. And besides the men of this place said, There has been no cult prostitute here. Judah replied, Let her keep the items for herself, otherwise we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute, and now she is pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message, I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Judah recognised them and said, She is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her intimately again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing, This one came out first. But then he pulled his hand back. Out came his brother and she said, What a breakout you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out and was named Zera. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Without question, this is a pretty messy chapter. In fact, this is probably one of the messiest chapters in all of scripture. And the temptation for us today is to not go back into it. Not to study it, because it's not pleasant for us to read. To do so would, would be to go face to face with sin, and all of its effects, and all the ways it disrupts and decays and destroys these people, but also our lives as well. I would argue there are four people that this passage focuses on, and in each of these people, we see something of the ugliness, and the messiness, and the brokenness, and destructiveness of sin. And it's not only that these people sinned when we read this passage, we don't just see what the people did. No, this is a chapter that directs us towards who these people were, who they were. This is a passage that highlights people's identity. As sinners, they sinned because the reality is 
We always do what we are. They were sinners who sinned. We always do what we are. And each of these four people would have probably identified with the words of Paul in Romans 17 verse 19. Paul said this, For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. There's something inside us. There's something within them. There's something within all of us that resorts to wrong instead of right, flesh instead of spirit, me instead of them. The reality is that each of these four people in our passage today would be able to identify with each one of our lives as well. If we're being honest today, each of the people in this passage would be able to identify with our lives. Because as we read their lives, we see something of us in them. You know, if we're going to be brutally honest this morning, how many of you have ever said or done or thought something and then said after the event, why did I ever say that? Why did I ever do that? Why did I ever think that? And if it was possible to have a PowerPoint of all of your life's sins on full display for everybody to see, none of us would want anyone to see it. We would not want to see it ourselves. Why? Firstly, because it would be the longest PowerPoint presentation you've ever seen. But secondly, if we're honest today, we don't like to think of ourselves as sinners. Let's, let's be honest about that. Deep down, we think we are good people. We're not as bad as the Bible says we are. If we're not as bad as the Bible says we are, if we're actually quite good people, then why Jesus? Why would we ever think that we need Jesus in our lives? We need to understand something about this passage, Genesis 38. And when we understand this, we'll see how it connects to our own lives, to my life and to your life. When we read about the lives of Er, of Onan, of Tamar and Judah, these four people, what becomes clear and what they all have in common is the fact that their confidence in life, their trust day to day was not directed towards God. It was either directed towards themselves or something else within their lives. And as we see this in Genesis 38, we see something of the DNA of sin. We get a glimpse, we capture a picture of what sin is really all about. What is a sin underneath all of our sins? Sin is when we choose not to trust God. Instead, we choose to trust something else apart from God. More often than not, we choose to trust ourselves at the expense of trusting God. So let's take some time to examine these four individuals in Genesis 38. And let's examine how it is they put their hope, their confidence, their faith in something or something or someone other than God. Let's look at the first example that we're up on the screen for. Is number one, Er. The example of Er within this passage. Don't get a lot of information about Er. We just read this in verses 6 to 7 of our passage. Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. Now Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. So Er marries a Canaanite woman, Tamar, arranged by his father Judah. And in doing this, Judah was directly disobeying the command of his great-grandfather Abraham, who said these words to his son Isaac. In Genesis 24 and verse 3, Abraham says to Isaac, I will have you swear by the Lord, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. So 
Clearly, Judah is directly disobeying God's command. But Isaac also said the same thing to Judah's father, Jacob. Genesis 28, verse 1, we read, So Isaac, son of Jacob, blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite girl. It's crystal clear. And yet Judah disobeys God. The question is, why did both Abraham and Isaac say this? Well, they both knew that when God's chosen family intermarried with the Canaanites, they would, after a few generations, become just like them. There would be no difference between God's chosen people and those who surrounded God's chosen people. The customs of the Canaanites would become the customs of God's people. The idolatry of the Canaanites would become the idolatry of God's people. And God did not want this. And we can never say for definite, but it appears to be the case that as Er marries into Canaanite culture, he effectively becomes one of them. He did not worship the true and living God. Instead, he lived for the practices and the rituals of the land of Canaan. This is why it says that Er was evil in the Lord's sight. What is this but an example of Er choosing not to put his trust and his confidence in God? Most likely, Er's evil was down to the fact that his faith, his trust, his confidence was not in Yahweh, but instead in another culture's gods and customs. It leaves us with this burning question. As we look at the life of Er, it makes us ask a question, or it should make us ask a question, and it will be up on the screen for us. Is our faith, hope, and confidence in God, or in something else? Is our faith, hope, and confidence in God, or something else? Take a moment this morning to let this question Penetrate your heart. Let it stir your heart. Ask your spirit to convict you about what it is you really live for within your life. Don't automatically assume that your hope is different from the world's hope. That your hope is in God. That your hope is in Yahweh. Instead, ask yourself a question. What does the fruit of my life tell me? What does the evidence of how I live day to day, what does it point towards? Does it point towards the fact I'm living for God? Or does it point towards the fact I'm living for something else? And as you ask these questions of yourself, we're going to move on. We're going to take some time to look at the second example in our passage, the example of Onan. Onan, number two, the second born. As we look at the example of Onan, it's important we focus on verses 8 to 10 of our passage. God has just put Judas firstborn to death for his evil. And we then read these words in verse 8. Then Judas said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. So what's going on here? What's happening in this part of Genesis 38? Why is Onan sleeping with his dead brother's wife? doesn't exactly fit in with what we see in our world today. This wouldn't ever happen within our culture. If we're honest this morning, we probably struggle to come to terms with what's happening here through a modern lens. But in ancient culture, this practice was commonplace. When somebody died, this was levirate marital practice. Basically, if a man died without an heir, the brother would be expected to marry the widow and produce an heir for his dead brother. This was an ancient practice in a number of different cultures at that time. And it eventually became biblical law. We read about it in Deuteronomy 25 and in verses 5 to 10. 
And you may also remember this practice was at the very centre of the story of Ruth and Boaz in the Old Testament. And the bigger purpose of this law was to ensure that every person in any given family would be looked after and cared for despite the unexpected death of a loved one. That was its purpose. It was actually a very caring and supportive law. And Onan was having none of it. He did not submit to his cultural expectation as the next brother. Onan was evil in what he did by not fulfilling his duty. Not just, not just because he was inhibiting this custom. A custom which ultimately God approved. But more than that, Onan was directly disregarding the promise of God. That God would make his chosen family, his people fruitful. That he would multiply his family and he would bless his family. And this is something we find throughout Genesis. God is constantly promising to his people that he's going to multiply and he's going to bless. Let me just share three examples from the, from the many verses in Genesis where God says that he would make his people fruitful, that he would multiply them. First off, Genesis 17, verse 6, God says, I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you, from this family. Genesis 22, 17, God says, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand in the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies. Finally, Genesis 35:11. God also said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation, indeed an assembly of nations will come from you and kings will descend from you. And Onan is directly opposed to this. He's opposing these promises of God, so God puts him to death. He's not just rejecting God here. He's fighting against God's plan and purpose for the world. There's also another reason why God puts him to death. It's down to Onan's inheritance. Ultimately, Onan's disobedience is rooted in a love for money. Er was, his, was the firstborn and would be entitled to Judah's inheritance. If Er has no offspring, the inheritance would transfer to Onan unless, unless Tamar has a son. And in what we've just read, with Onan not fulfilling his duty, he is effectively eliminating any competition so that Onan can get the birthright himself. So it's clear Onan's hope and confidence was not in God and in the things of God, rather his hope and confidence was in the inheritance that he could get out of his family after he passed away. So Onan believed his life would be complete if he had more wealth, if he had more stuff, if he had more money. Not if God was ruling and reigning more and more within his life. So it begs a question this morning. A question you may have already heard this morning. It will be up on the screen for us. Is your faith, is your hope, is your confidence in God? Or is it in something else? For Onan, if only I had this inheritance, then my life would be complete. Then things would be okay. If only I had dot, dot, dot. So let me ask, what is that Onan-like desire that you think will solve all of life's problems and bring you the fulfillment that you long for? What is that Onan-like desire that you have that you think will solve all of life's problems and bring you the fulfillment and satisfaction that you long for? As you reflect in your heart on the life of Onan, let the spirit convict you. But let's now take a moment to examine Tamar, number three, Tamar. Let's look again at verses 11 to 19 of our passage. 
We read these words, Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he might die too like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira, the Adolamite, went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the way to Timnah, for she saw that though Shela had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me for sleeping with me? I will send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. But she said, Only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you? He asked. She answered, Your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her. She became pregnant by him. She got up and left, then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. So Tamar is left as a widow by her father-in-law Judah. And widows were the poorest people in ancient society. They often needed help from other people. And Tamar knew that the only reason she was in this state of impoverishment was because of her father-in-law Judah. He was not giving her to his youngest son. And so she deceives and manipulates Judah into sleeping with him in order that she can have, she can fulfill her role in the family and give birth to the next generation. Tamar prostitutes herself to her father-in-law and in doing so, she's getting revenge for the way that Judah has treated her. As far as we're aware, she did not have a love for the true and living God. The passage doesn't tell us, but she was a Canaanite. So most likely she didn't have a love for Yahweh. Her hope and confidence was not in Yahweh and in his power to help her through this difficult situation. Instead, what we see is someone who believes that the only way that she can move forward in life is through her own ability, through her own cunning, through her own effort, and ultimately through her own deceit. She wanted her life to gain the purpose that she felt it deserved, but she also wanted to get revenge. She wanted to hurt the person who had ruined her life, her father-in-law Judah. Begs the question this morning, a question you might have heard already today. Is your faith, hope and confidence in God or in something else? Is your faith, hope and confidence in God or in something else? You know, I wonder this morning, what situation are you trying to manipulate and control? Believe in it when it goes as you want or how you hoped for. You will then be able to say, now my life is what it should be. Tamar was clearly wrong by Judah. But how she responded to that wrong was not according to God's plan. She wasn't trusting God to take control of this situation. In what ways have you been wronged, sinned against, hurt? And let me ask, have you given these hurts to God? Are you trusting that God sees, that God knows, and that God will act in his time, not in our time? Or are you trying to manipulate, are you trying to control, are you even trying to deceive in order to get the justice that you long for. So again, let these questions stir in your heart, as we're stirring in my heart, as we focus now on the final person in this passage. 
the main man, Judah himself. Judah. Let's have a look together at verses 20 to 26 of our passage. As we try and understand what's going on within the life of Judah, because Judah is a complex character. In verse 20 we read, When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adalamite, in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who is beside the road at Enaim? There has been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adalamite returned to Judah, saying, I couldn't find her. And besides, the men of the place said, There has been no cult prostitute here. Judah replied, Let her keep the items for herself, otherwise we'll become a laughingstock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute, and now she is pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message, I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Judah recognised them. And he said, she is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son Shela, and he did not know her intimately again. This story is a real stain in the life of Judah. What are we to say of this guy? Not a lot of good, if we're honest. Apart from one instance, which we're going to look at in a minute, there is nothing good we can say about Judah in Genesis chapter 38. Judah's story is a messy one, but it's important we look at his testimony so that in the power of God's Spirit, we do not live as he lived. Instead, we learn who God is calling us to be through his life. Let me share with you three things we learn about Judah from this passage. Number one, Judah is a coward. Judah is a coward. Greater than any fear of the Lord from Judah is his fear of what might happen to his family, his sons. If he gives all of them over to God, he withholds his youngest son from Tamar because he does not want to lose him. He doesn't want to lose him. But he does this without a proper understanding of who God is and who God is calling his family to be. The reality is that Judah is more concerned about the preservation of his family's sinful life he wants his youngest son to survive in order that he and his youngest son can continue to live in rebellion to the God of their ancestors. He wants to keep the status quo. He wants to live in sin. He doesn't want to hand over his entire family to God. So number one, Judah is a coward and that he is running away from God's call upon his life and upon his family's life. Number two, Judah is a pervert. Judah is a pervert. His wife has just died. He sees a disguised Tamar. He doesn't know it's her, dressed as a prostitute. And what does Judah do? Three things. He objectifies her, he commodifies her, and he sleeps with her. So he is quite open to using her for his own sinful, sexual gain. He is willing to pay a price for this. And he completely disregards the fact that God's gift of sexual intimacy was designed within the confines of marriage. Judah thinks that this woman created in the image of God is there to be used and then discarded with, to be forgotten about. He doesn't even know her name. All he knows is that she was maybe a temple prostitute. Of course, the reality is he does know her name, but at the time he's completely unaware. So number two, Judah is a pervert. Number one, Judah is a coward. And finally, 
Judah is a hypocrite. Judah is a hypocrite. When he finds out that Tamar is pregnant, he demands that she is burned. Now, burning was a much harsher form of capital punishment than stoning. And the fact that Judah suggests this shows that the level of anger and hatred he has towards Tamar for doing this. But don't lose sight of the fact that Judah expects a death penalty for his daughter-in-law for something that he did three months prior and with the very person he is demanding to be burned. Complete hypocrisy. This is the moment that Judah's junk is catching up with him. Judah sees himself in a mirror and he realises he's a hypocrite, he's a pervert, and he's a coward. Who he is in public does not match up with who he is in private. This story speaks to us in two ways. First of all, let's not avoid the elephant in the room. This chapter addresses the absolute danger and folly of sexual sin. When we sin sexually, outside of God's good design for marriage between one man and one woman, we become like Judah. We use people for our own fulfilment and satisfaction. And when it comes to sexual immorality, there is no love for God. There is no love for, for the other person. The only love in sexual immorality is a love of sin and a love of self. So examine your heart today. Examine your heart. What is your issue when it comes to sexual immorality? If it is an issue for you today, maybe your issue is pornography. Maybe it's sexual immorality with someone who you're not married to. Maybe it's what you spend your days thinking about. Maybe it's what you watch on social media, as subtle or as obvious as it might be. Whatever platform your sexual immorality manifests itself in, understand this, as Judah's junk caught up with him, your junk will catch up with you. It's a promise. This doesn't just apply to sexual sin, this applies to all of our sin. Our junk will catch up with us. You will reap what you sow. Your sins will find you out at some point. I hope this story of Judah acts as a loving warning sign. This is not a, a chance for us to condemn folk. This is a chance to warn folk in love. It's a loving warning sign of what will happen if you continue down a path of sexual sin. question is, when you're confronted by it, when you come face to face with your own sin, any sin or sexual sin, what are you, what are you going to do? What will you do in that moment? How do you react or how are you going to react when your junk catches up with you? Will you remain in denial or will you respond with conviction? Amazingly, Judah does the latter. By God's grace, Judah does the latter. He says this, She is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son Shela, and he did not know her intimately again. Two things here from this small section. He repented of his sin and he also made a decision never to go back and he never went back. He did not know her intimately again. This is repentance. There's a recognition of her sin but there's also a refusal to go back. It's a full 180 degrees turning away from her sin and towards God. This is not a grey area for us at Denison Baptist Church. Whether it's sexual sin or any sin, we are a family of God's people who are committed to lives of holiness and the power of God's Spirit through His Spirit 
for his glory. So if you're struggling today with sexual sin of some kind, let me say first of all, God is faithful. God is faithful. He will rescue you. He will release you from this struggle as you rely on him and as you move your life in a Godward direction. Let me share two passages of scripture from the New Testament which are really important for us as we think about how we can overcome this particular temptation and struggle in our lives. And this is everywhere in our culture. Anywhere we go, whatever we watch, there is always a temptation to sin in this way. Let's not deny this. Firstly, let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 18 to 20. It's a passage we looked at about 18 months ago, two years ago in our series in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes these words, flee sexual immorality, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. That word flee. Is so important for us today. So important. Think about how you would react. If you were standing in the middle of a burning building. What would you do? If you woke up. You found yourself in the middle of a burning building. Well you would do everything you could. To escape. And you would do so in the quickest possible time. You would by definition flee. And so it is when we are tempted to sin sexually. We have to run more than that. We have to flee. We have to escape as quickly as possible from it. And the power that God gives us, because the longer we linger, the more likely we will get burnt. Make no mistake about it, you will get burnt. And you'll get burnt badly because of it. So hold on to this passage as we think about how it is that God has called us to do what Judah did not do. And then let me also direct you towards what Paul says in Ephesians 5 and verses 1 to 3. Paul says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for the saints. Another translation says this, There should not be a hint of sexual immorality in our lives not even a hint what this means is that a non-believer should be able to look at your life and through what you say through what you do, through what you watch through what you associate with even through what you laugh at they could not see anything that would suggest any kind of sexual immorality not even a trace of it Paul is not saying here that we should not spend time with sexually immoral people of course we spend time with them, we love them, we walk with them, we support them, we pray for them, we encourage them because we are them. But we do not embrace and we do not endorse their way of life. Instead, we direct them towards a greater satisfaction and fulfillment as we, God willing, have found a greater satisfaction and fulfillment. And his name is Jesus. So when it comes to sexual sin and the challenge that this might be for you in your life, we're again left with this question question you may have heard already this morning a question we've touched upon is your faith hope and confidence in God or in something else is your faith hope and confidence in God or in something else we've already thought about Judah's response towards God as he came to terms with his own sin 
His response was one of conviction and repentance. But as we close, have you ever thought about God's response towards Judah? Before any semblance of repentance in the heart of Judah, God was working in his life. And God planned for Judah to be part of his bigger plan for salvation for the entire world and all of human history. Matthew's gospel, we read the genealogy of Jesus. And in Matthew 1, the second part of verse 1 to the first part of verse 2, we read these words. And I think it might be up on the screen for us. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So interestingly, God permitted for this sinful Judah, this man of immorality and incest and hypocrisy, to be included in the genealogy of Jesus. You could easily overlook this. I want you, I want you to see this morning that Matthew 1 tells us something about Genesis 38. And it's this, God was not done with Judah. Through Judah's family line, despite all of his mess, despite all of his mistakes, came the Messiah, Jesus. This means that if God can redeem and restore Judah, and he can work powerfully in his life, without question, he can do the same for you as well. Despite your sin, God hasn't finished with you. He can still work powerfully in your life. So do not ever think that because of your sin, past, present, future, God has abandoned you or God has given up on you. Your, your life might look like Genesis chapter 38 right now, but it can one day be Matthew chapter 1 with Jesus at the very centre of your life. Don't misunderstand what we're doing here. This morning is not a day for you to hear all of this and then for you just to try and work out how to be a better person for God. This is not what we're talking about. That's not the Christian life. It's not for us to work it all out. If you think about living a life that pleases God rests on your performance for God, then you're going to be drained. You're going to be discouraged because none of us can do this ourselves. Instead, this morning is a day when you can do one thing. One thing. You can run to him. And as you run to him, realise that he's already running to you. And as you meet with Jesus, he takes your sin, he washes you clean, he renews your heart, he will give you his power so that you will live out his purpose and you will do so for his glory. You know, if God didn't give up on Judah, he hasn't given up on you. He is still working in your life today. Amen? So let me encourage you today, run to God if you've never committed your life to him. If you're here in person and you want to do that, you've never made a decision to follow him, you want to follow him today, you want to live under his rule and reign for your life, then speak to us after the service. We would count it a privilege to pray with you and to trust that God is going to direct your life for his glory. If you're watching this um, online or even watching this recorded, you can click on the prayer button or you can contact us directly and there'll be someone available to pray with you and to pray for you. But there's nothing more important than making Jesus the very centre of your life. Nothing more important than that. You might have challenges and there may be a number of different things that are happening in your life. But unless you're making Jesus the very centre of your life, then none of this other stuff is going to make any sense. Maybe today you're struggling with a particular sin. Maybe it's some of what we've talked about this morning. Maybe it's a sexual sin. You know you can't break free from this unless God breaks into your life in some way. Well, let me encourage you, do not waste this opportunity. I know it's, it's a sensitive subject, but if the Spirit is convicting you about a particular sin today, 
then respond to him. Speak with someone today. Contact us after the service. Click on the prayer button. Contact us directly or on social media. We can respond today as we worship through song. We can sing in our hearts if we're here. We can sing out loud if we're in our homes. And we can also come to the table this morning. And as we come to this table, we're recognising that every example we find in Scripture, every example we see in our lives, is flawed and fallen apart from one, Jesus. Jesus died in our place for our sins. He rose three days later. So this morning we come to this table and we say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for giving me new life. Thank you for making me a new creation with new desires and a new heart to live for him. The reality is, for each one of us who know Jesus, it was on the night in which he was betrayed that Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. And in the same way he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. So in a moment, if we're here in person, if we love Jesus, we're going to take this bread, we're going to drink this cup, we're going to worship Jesus with all that we are, and we're going to declare something. We're going to say, Jesus, you are not finished with me yet, as he wasn't finished with Judah. We're going to believe that God has a plan and purpose for our lives as we take this bread and drink this cup. We're going to take this bread and drink this cup, and we're going to do so looking forward to the day that he will renew all things, including our sinful and broken lives. What a day. He's going to renew all things for his glory. No more problems. No more challenges. No more suffering. We will be one with God, fully restored. So let's respond in all these different ways as you're led by God's Spirit today. Before we do this, let's pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We thank you that uh, your word does not shy away from uh, difficult topics. And Lord, we do pray that, that as we have spent time studying this passage, we would um, understand what you are saying to us and we would choose to respond in faith. Lord, if, if we know you or if we have yet to come to experience your love and grace, whatever stage we're at on this spectrum, Lord, I pray that you would, you would use this moment as we respond in worship in these different ways, to minister to our hearts and to bring about real change and transformation, that we actively say no to our sin and we actively choose to walk in your path. So in the power of your spirit, Lord, we ask that this would be a time of conviction, not condemnation. This would be a time of renewal, not a time where we just continue to do what we've already did. Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and minds. And may Denison Baptist Church be a family of God's people who love you and hate sin, who choose to live lives of holiness, not for our sake, but for your glory. Lord, would you speak to us as we now respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. God bless.